2: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Michael Fishbach to discuss his new book, Black Power in Palestine. Dr. Fishbach examines the complicated history of African-American interest in and support for Palestine, beginning in the 1960s and concluding with a brief epilogue that brings us up to the present. Dr. Fishbach, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a professor um, of history. Uh, specializing in the modern Middle East, and particularly the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I've been teaching in Central Virginia for the past 27 years. But I also teach a course on America in the 60s, and have been not only a historian, but also an American, very much aware of American history. And um, it was in the context of reading up a memoir from someone who had been in the underground group, The Weather Underground, and mentioned a connection between Timothy Leary and the Palestinian people. And I was struck by the fact that I had never heard of this. And then I came across a reference to Malcolm X having gone to Gaza, and I'd never heard of that. And that's what prompted me on this journey, which has taken me deep into American history, and that is to look at the ways that The question of Israel-Palestine really was an animating factor uh, among black Americans in the 60s and 70s. So that's really a little bit about me and how I came about this project.
2: What did the research process for this look like?
1: Well, as a trained historian, of course, I'm predisposed to going into not only deep research, but particularly primary sources. So I dug into both published, and I mean published as in online or in microfilm form, published primary sources from various groups, from the Black Panther Party to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to the NAACP. I also traveled, I think it was 12 different states. I went to university archives, collections, private archives, archives looking anytime any time I found a person or a group, I would go online to see if there were papers that had been uh, delivered, you know, archived at a university or otherwise. So I studied primary source documents to read in their own words what these people and these groups had been saying. I backed that up with, of course, the requisite examination of secondary source materials but complemented that with a good number of interviews with people who actually were there. And despite the pitfalls inherent in a historian using oral history sources, I found that those complemented the written record a great deal and proved to be very, very useful. So taking this together with a project that also looked at how white leftists in the 60s and 70s looked at the Arab-Israeli conflict together. This process took me over 10 years' worth of, of research and writing and travel. I even went overseas. I sent people interview questions via, via snail mail to people who were in prison. I interviewed people, in former airline hijackers in Arabic. I emailed people questions. I met people. It was really a a lively and very informative process, just the whole history of how I researched this.
2: I want to return. Uh, You mentioned you have a project in the wings dealing with white leftists. But first, let's work through this book. I want to start with your first chapter, which is it starts with Malcolm X. And this was an interesting one to me because X's... um, International activism always seems to focus on African decolonization. Understandably, his lifetime intersects with this incredibly heated period in African decolonization. But he also spends time in Palestine, which you focus on. What do you tease out here?
1: Well, that first and foremost, Malcolm X's interest in the Palestinians as another example of a people of color that were struggling to be free, from an a, a global imperialist system that was really headquartered in the White West, he definitely not only saw them as kindred people, but his own religious background as a, first a member of the Nation of Islam and then uh, what we would call a more traditional uh, Muslim, I think, also predisposed him to seeing Palestinians as brothers and sisters. In a religious sense as well as in a political sense so it definitely was he he laid the basis he drew upon earlier people of course but his example of directly linking the black freedom struggle in America with that being waged by people of color and he once famously said by by black I mean red yellow he meant every kind of person of color by linking those two he definitely set the seeds of what we can call black power internationalism that was very influential uh, in later, um, later years after his death in 1965.
2: And that's where your second chapter picks up is, is where black power, specifically the people who almost sort of invented this term black power, start becoming interested. And that's uh, the group Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Tell us a little bit about them.
1: The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, or SNCC, was of course famous for, among other things, the Freedom Summer in Mississippi in 1964, voting rights activism. But in 1966, SNCC's leader, Stokely Carmichael, became famous for being the first civil rights figure to publicly use the expression black power. He didn't create it, but... uh, and Willie Ricks is generally associated with that, but he used it. And it very much was seen as the hard edge of the general black freedom struggle. And there was really a growing divide between groups like SNCC that openly actually said, we are now a black power group. and They also said, we are a human rights group, as opposed to the more narrowly focused uh, change from within the system kind of approach of the traditional civil rights groups. There was an interesting cross-fertilization between SNCC's growing internationalism, its black power outlook, its speaking out against the war in Vietnam, and its eventual championing of the Palestinian cause, a connection between that and Malcolm X, in that uh, a relatively little-known follower of Malcolm X, who had worked with him, both in the Nation of Islam, she had worked for the Nation of Islam, she worked later for Malcolm's uh, Organization of Afro-American Unity, And her name was Ethel Minor. And after Malcolm X's assassination in 1965, and she had met Palestinians, by the way, in college, she ended up working for SNCC. And in Lowndes County, Alabama, she organized a book group, Stokely Carmichael recalled in his memoirs, and the book group focused around the Arab-Israeli conflict. So not only her own background, knowing Palestinians, but I think her connection with Malcolm X really led to this cross-fertilization in that SNCC leaders and and eventual leaders, I should say at that point, like Stokely Carmichael, like H. Rapp Brown, uh, like lesser-known figures, but still important ones like Ralph Featherstone, had already cut their teeth on the issue of the Palestinians and what they saw as their oppression by Israel by the time SNCC became really a leading national voice. And what really set the proverbial cat among the chickens was shortly after the June 1967 Arab-Israeli War, Miner published an article, Ethel Minor published an article in the SNCC newsletter roundly denouncing Israel, hailing the Palestinians, and this just created an explosive backlash, notably among Jewish Americans and Jewish American groups and people who had donated to the civil rights movement, but even mainstream civil rights groups that here were blacks coming out against Israel, and what did this mean? And it was set in a context of tense black Jewish relations that had gone back a number of years. And that's really what first set, more than Malcolm X's own views, that's what set this issue on the public stage, that there were black Americans that were speaking out, not just on Vietnam, but now speaking out on the Arab-Israeli conflict, and in ways that challenged mainstream thinking. And uh, SNCC received a lot of blowback for it. Uh, and ultimately, the group really uh, basically faded away. And this was part of the reason why. Funding began to dry up. But that, as I used in the, in the title of my second chapter, The Fire This Time, a takeoff of James Baldwin's book, um, The Fire Next Time, this is really what, what put the issue of black support for the Palestinians, of black speaking out in general, on the Arab-Israeli conflict, really on the political uh, radar screen of Americans.
2: And what does that have? uh, What effect does that have on the American civil rights community? Because historically Jewish American groups and African American groups had been closely aligned, but SNCC's activities, does does that throw a wrench into the community at all?
1: It absolutely did. And as I mentioned a moment ago, there were already uh, chinks in that armor, the beloved community of blacks and Jews working together for civil rights for all Americans. had already suffered a number of hits, um, which only got worse starting with the series of urban insurrections in places like Watts in Los Angeles in 1965, Newark and Detroit that same summer of 1967 that the SNCC newsletter article came out. And it definitely created a real backlash. And as I chart in my third chapter, groups such as the NAACP and Roy Wilkins, its executive director, groups, uh, some of the leaders of CORE, and particularly the noted uh, pacifists, labor activists, socialist, civil rights advocate Bayard Rustin, quickly rushed to Israel's defense. And you see in some of the documents, particularly the internal documents that Rustin was writing to his own friends, that it was a very deliberate attempt, not only because they really believed in Israel as a bastion of progress in the Middle East, fighting a group of you know fanatical Arabs, but quite frankly, to repair the damage that groups like SNCC had done to show American Jewish allies of these traditional civil rights groups that not all blacks were supporting the Arabs. Because people started, um, you know, donations dried up. People started writing to the NAACP, I'm not giving any more money. And I saw documents where Roy Wilkins was writing back, hey, we're not the ones that said this. That was SNCC. And so it really created... Um, an ideological and even practical problem for the mainstream civil rights groups beyond their own ideological predisposition toward israel and sort of but this idea of working within the system safe and sane approach to reform work with labor unions work with the democratic party and jewish groups it really created problems for them
2: And then there's an individual who has a sort of tightrope to walk. Um, That's Martin Luther King Jr., which is sort of the subtitle of your fourth chapter. Where is King in all of this?
1: King's role is both complicated and nuanced, and on the other hand, I think, grossly misunderstood today. There's been a general feeling over the decades that King was solidly in support of Israel, as were other mainstream civil rights groups, that his own working with uh, Jews, Jewish Americans, Jewish organizations, uh, theologians, um, uh, people like Joachim Prince, uh, really guided his thinking in this. It's actually more complicated. And I begin that chapter with a story that very few people on earth knew about until I investigated. And that was that Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King, visited East, you know Jordanian controlled East Jerusalem and the West Bank in March of 1959 kind of a religious pilgrimage and he they both became ill and they uh, a doctor was sent to treat them named Viken kalbion who happened to be although Armenian by birth had been born and raised in Jerusalem he spoke Arabic from the beginning he was essentially part of the Arabic community the Palestinian community of Jerusalem he was a man who had Lost, he and his family had lost their home in West Jerusalem in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. They were not allowed to go back. These were refugees. They couldn't return. They never got their house back. And um, he told me, I interviewed him in person, he said that after he treated the kings, they told him, uh, please sit down. We'd like to talk because we've never heard the Arab side of this story of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And so the kings were treated to a history of the Palestinian refugee problem, the creation of Israel and what that did for the Palestinians, from a man who experienced it firsthand. He told me he later arranged for King to have a luncheon with some dignitaries, including the mayor of Palestinian East Jerusalem. And uh, it seemed to have really made an impact on King. Now, fast forward to the 60s. Particularly because of the SNICK controversy in the summer of sixty seven, King was forced to speak out on the question of Israel and anti Semitism, because of course people were accusing SNCC not just of being anti Israel but anti Semitic. Worsening it was the fact that King had given the opening speech at the National New Conference, the National New Politics Conference in Chicago in late August of 1967. And that conference, a few days later, pressured by black uh, militants, issued a rebuke of Israel. So two cases of blacks leading the charge against Israel prompted several, about six American Jewish organizations, to send a formal letter to King, asking him essentially to renounce all this, and he did. But it was interesting how he did this. King and his group, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, actually issued a statement about their positions on Israel and anti-Semitism. And King made it very clear that he personally and his group supported the right of Israel to exist in no uncertain terms. He did not, despite the fact that he um, others were asking him to, he didn't talk about Israel's the fact that Israel had launched the 1967 war just two months before, or that Israel was an occupation of Arab territory and Christian holy sites. He always made clear from that point on until his death, uh, nine months later, that he absolutely supported Israel's right to exist. He absolutely condemned anti-Semitism, but he never said criticism of Israel equals anti-Semitism. Um, in fact, later on in, li- in, in um, the past 20 years, a book was published that contained an Uh, An article that King had supposedly written called Letter to an Anti-Zionist Friend, in which he did equate anti-Israelism with anti-Semitism. And it was determined about 10 years ago that that letter is a hoax. Nobody quite knows where it came from, but people would cite it, even reprint it. And it turns out if you actually go back to the archival record, there was no such article. So partisans, notably of Israel, have tried to claim King as, as saying he you know, was pro-Israeli because he absolutely supported the right of Israel to exist, which he did. But, and the last thing I'll say, is that King also, during the final nine months of his life, whenever asked about this, he always asserted Israel's right to exist and in the next breath said, However, the Arab world will essentially remain angry and intemperate, is the word he used, because it's mired in poverty. And we need, therefore, to combine, to really resolve the conflict, we need to uh, see about economic development for the Arab world. King never publicly acknowledged the political basis for Palestinian grievances, but he did always pair his support for Israel's right to exist, not necessarily its policies, he did always pair that with a statement that, we have to turn our attention just like we have to turn, because you see, he he was not only talking about Palestinians, he was also talking about black Americans. You know, the, the cities were exploding in the summer of 67. And he always said, look, if you really want to deal with black anger in the cities, you have to deal with poverty. So he was a t- a, really taking that same approach to the Palestinians. So he never approved or, or held up Palestinian political grievances. But in walking this tightrope between the black power people to his left and the mainstream civil rights allies of his, he always was careful to make sure to say something about development in the Arab world, dealing with poverty, dealing with Arab grievances, uh, as well as supporting Israel. So he he tried to take a middle ground really between those two wings of the black freedom struggle, the black power movement on the left and the traditional civil rights groups on the right.
2: And then in your fifth chapter, which having navigated sort of these different political wings of the black freedom struggle, you then take a sort of cultural turn um, to the black arts movement. Tell us a little bit about that, this sort of disparate group of individuals and how they're looking at Palestine.
1: Right. The black arts movement, sometimes has been described as the so-called cultural wing of political black power. And some of its early advocates or people associated with it, like Harold Cruz, Leroy Jones, who more famously changed his name and became better known as Amiri Baraka, really believed that as part of a general black, um, let's call it revolution, it couldn't just be political, but it had to be cultural. It had to be rooted not only in a uniquely and expressive black culture, but that African Americans needed to also control their own cultural agenda. There, that needed to be express their agency in the realms of literature, of theater, of filmmaking, and so forth. And not surprisingly, coming out of the milieu of black power thinking, you find people like Harold Cruz. Um, in his uh, famous book, Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, in 1967, kind of blasting Israel and Zionism. Uh, Amiri Baraka um, uh, was a co-editor of, of *Black Fire*, a, a collection of, of black arts movement poetry and writing, and there are some references to the Middle East in there. Later, figures like Don Lee, who later changed his name to Hakim of who's still around. And others you find in their poetry, direct references to Palestinian guerrillas, to, to Jerusalem and Islamic holy sites, um, which again, given the overall uh, black power internationalism and embrace of the Palestinians and their struggle, is, is not surprising. I think another dimension there of the cultural dimension of black power is that the Palestinians also were developing what they understood as a culture of, of resistance, of posters, of heroic images, uh, of famous symbols like the black and white or red and white checkered kufiya that guerrillas, Palestinian guerrillas, wore around their necks or on their heads. They, too, embraced this idea of a visual culture so that um, even outside the black arts movement, people like Emery Douglas, the... Uh, who did illustrations for the Black Panther Party's newsletter, also this, uh, embraced this idea that we're not only trying to create a, a culture of blackness, of what uh, Frantz Fanon wrote about as négritude in French, a culture of blackness, but an authentic voice coming from us as black Americans, defining our own culture, and that this culture should be uh, an inspiration, part of the political struggle. And that was certainly something that um, that bled over, even into into writers, Shirley Graham, Du Bois, for instance, James Baldwin, other black writers who were not actually part of the black arts movement, but you see it in them too. And as I said, um, certainly one saw it in the writings and the illustrations of that came out from the Black Panther Party.
2: Which is the perfect segue into your next chapter, which... Deals with the Black Panther Party and this, and what you call the guerrilla image. What is the Panther interest in Palestine?
1: Well, it too stemmed from the uh, – from, certainly from groups like SNCC and the wider dialogue going on now about black power attitudes toward revolutionary movements in the third world, notably in Africa. Um, and but the Middle East as well. It also stemmed, though, from the specific presence of the Black Power figure Eldridge Cleaver, who went underground in late 1968, went to Cuba, and from Cuba went to Algeria, which is an Arab majority country in North Africa. And Cleaver lived in Algeria for several years. And develop quite close relationships with the main Palestinian guerrilla group, the main group within the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, which was the guerrilla group known as Al fateh And Al fatehs leader was Yasser Arafat. And in fact, in December of '69, Cleaver actually met Yasser Arafat. And the, the archival record and interviews I've done showed that they were the Panther, the Black Panthers who set up an office there, what they called their international section in Algiers, the capital of Algeria, became quite close with al Fatah, And um, they sent people like uh, Donald D.C. Cox, went from Algeria to a conference on Palestinians in Kuwait. Um, They had quite a a relationship, and, and they were publishing and doing other things. So I think the specific presence of Of Eldridge Cleaver, his wife Kathleen Neal Cleaver, uh, their cartoonist I mentioned a second ago, Emery Douglas uh, was in Algeria for a while. That on top of the already rampant black power interest in the Palestinian struggle is what contributed to the Black Panthers becoming in some ways the most vocal in terms of not only uh, expression, but longevity. I mean, they they were publishing about Palestinians for several years, SNCC basically did it once. It really elevated the Panthers to being, in a sense, the leading voice of black power support for the Palestinians in the 60s.
2: And then your next chapter. It deals with a sort of curious symbiosis that's going on as these as these two sides are playing off of each other. And the other side is actually there are Palestinians and Israelis living in Israel and and elsewhere who are looking at what African-Americans are producing in the United States. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: You know, on the one hand, rather like the mainstream over here, the Israeli press was, you know, full of articles that were aghast at black Americans supporting Israel's sworn enemies, the the PLO. But at the same time, the Black Panthers' attitude, their rhetoric, their discourse, and their ideology of of the oppressed rising up appealed to one particular segment of Israeli-Jewish society— Uh, which, unlike the United States, if black Americans were the minority, it was actually a slight majority of Israelis in the early 70s were members of what today Israelis call the Mizrahi community, or often you hear the term the Sephardic community. That is, Jews who had come to Israel, or their parents and grandparents had come to Israel from Middle Eastern and North African countries. They, quote-unquote, looked... Like Arabs, they often, they or their parents spoke uh, whatever Arabic dialect from the country they'd come from. Their cultural patterns, their food, uh, in many ways was much, much closer to that of their Palestinian Arab neighbors than to the majority, uh, not the majority in terms of population, but the political and the cultural elites in Israel were dominated by Jews from European backgrounds, what we call Ashkenazic Jews. And some of these groups, like black Americans, many uh, Mizrahi Sephardic Jews uh, had uh, occupied lower levels on the socioeconomic ladder. They lived in poorer neighborhoods, had poorer education, disproportionate number of incidents of crime compared to Ashkenazic communities, and many of them were fed up. There had been serious riots in 1958 in Israel, these people demanding, you know, uh, better opportunity, be treated better. And the sight of black panthers, black Americans with clenched fists, demanding their rights, really appealed to these people. And in early 1971, in Jerusalem, a group of mostly Moroccan uh, Jews formed a group that they called quite consciously the Israeli Black Panther Organization and um, had demonstrations. There was actually some violence going on. They used a very similar discourse. You know, we as blacks are tired of this. We want our rights. And it was a very interesting symbiotic relationship by which you had Israeli Jews seeing themselves as sharing more with black Americans far away than with their own Jewish compatriots right there in Israel. And just like black power created a stir in this country, the Black Panthers definitely created a stir in Israel.
2: And then you you tease out sort of a historical dispute at the time over whether these allegations that members of the American Black Panther Party might have been receiving training from the PLO. What do you make of this?
1: Yes, this is th- this was something I had heard about, you know, references, whispers over the years. I'd seen books on terrorism and books on the Black Panthers that always mention these shadowy reports that – that Palestinian guerrilla groups, whether it was al Fatah or the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, that, that, that Black Panthers were being actually trained in the arts of guerrilla warfare in the Middle East. And I decided, well, it's time to really look at this. So I look at everything from press reports, interviews I did, declassified CIA documents, declassified FBI documents. I talked to you know, Palestinian hijackers from the time, such as Leila Khaled, um, about some of these rumors. And it appears uh, at the end of the day that it's not true, that in particular, one incident in which a tour of young African-Americans went to the Middle East in August of 1970, they went to Jordan, they actually attended a meeting of the Palestine National um Council. They met Yasser Arafat. They had their picture in in Jordanian newspapers because the meeting was held in Amman, Jordan, and somehow it all got mistranslated, notably by the New York Times, into saying that a group of quote black panthers had met with Arafat and were touring refugee camps, and which wasn't true. They weren't members of the Black Panther Party. In fact, the actual Black Panther Party cabled its regrets that it couldn't attend. But this combined with other hints that Palestinian groups were seeking out uh, American recruits, one thing led to another, and the FBI in particular became convinced, uh, notably not just that but the fact that Eldridge Cleaver was tight with al Fatah over in Algeria, that places like Jordan were witnessing some sort of secret training uh, of Palestinian guerrillas Uh, by Palestinian guerrillas of Black Panther members. But at the end of the day, the CIA was never convinced that this was true, doubted J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI's analysis. And indeed, from what I could find, uh, it it did not
0: turn out to be true. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Now, in your eighth chapter, you, you've traced out these sorts of different battle lines that different American groups are going to take, you know, taking stances on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then your eighth chapter, you start to see these, these all out – not – I mean figurative, but also in a couple of cases, violent fights breaking out over the, the appropriate position to take. Sketch out a few of those for us, if you will.
1: Okay. Well, um, they – as particularly once we got into the 70s, one saw on the one hand the Communist Party USA – taking which had had come out against what they called israeli aggression in 67 but as part of its increasing orientation toward the arabs the communist party launched a a front organization which dealt specifically with middle eastern issues and another front that dealt with political prisoners that was headed by party member angela davis and you saw increasingly, instead of just speaking of Arabs, the Communist Party started talking about Palestinians by, by the 1970s. Um, you also had in the post-60s world some of the underground black armed militants that vowed, despite the crashing of the 60s and the crashing of black power, they vowed to continue an actual armed struggle against what they saw as white you know, capitalist America. And they too embraced the Palestinians. I'm thinking of groups like the shadowy Black Liberation Army, and um, by the early 80s, kind of a that had metamorphosized into a group called the New African Freedom Fighters. So, both kind of above ground leftists in the 70s, like the Communist Party. Continuing the, the discourse of Palestinian liberation, some underground groups, such as the Black Liberation Army, even the the infamous Symbionese Liberation Army, which was noted for kidnapping the heiress Patty Hearst, was not specifically a black organization, but its leader, Donald DeFreeze, was. And the SLA itself had been well-versed in Palestinian history and the Palestinian guerrilla groups. Uh, kind of continuing these underground groups, uh, continuing their support for Palestinians. On the other hand, and then rather in um, further, much much further to the right, one saw that as the seventies progressed, that the black mainstream began slowly becoming ever more tepidly critical of Israel, supporting of Palestinian human rights, if not always directly supporting Palestinian. National rights. A good example of this was the uh, Black, the Congressional Black Caucus, which, uh, including people like, um, like Shirley Chisholm, the first black person and certainly the first black woman to run for president in 1972 on a major party ticket, and her second ever press release, Shirley Chisholm spoke to the Palestinian refugee problem. She uh, linked it to the poverty in black communities, with the poverty in 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 the refugee camps in the Middle East. So sh- slowly but surely, the Congressional Black Caucus began adopting more and more, again not necessarily openly pro-Palestinian national positions, but uh, sympathy with the human dimension of the Palestinian refugee problem. Um, groups like Trans Africa. Uh, black religious organizations like the National Black Pan- a Pastors Conference um, issuing statements concerned about Palestinian rights. So the 70s was an interesting time when some on the black left continued, above ground and underground, this discourse of liberation, but that the black mainstream was also shifting its views toward the Middle East and toward particularly Palestinian human rights. So that was a very interesting period, as I said, where what started as Black Power rhetoric started entering, in fact, into the Black mainstream.
2: And then in the, in the subsequent chapter, it continues into the seventies, and you look in particular at two figures, one of whom we've we've mentioned earlier, and that's Bayard Rustin, and then the other figure is Andrew Young. Before we dive into it, who was Andrew Young for our listeners?
1: Andrew Young was, uh, as a young man, the executive director of, of Martin Luther King's group, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. After King's death, he later uh, became elected as a representative in, in Congress. And in 1977, President Jimmy Carter, the new Carter administration, appointed Andy Young, who was from Atlanta. He's from Georgia, like Jimmy Carter was. Carter appointed him to be the first ever black Man, black person, to sit at the seat of U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. So he was the highest ranking African American in the Carter administration and the first black to occupy that important position, America's official representative at the UN. And uh, go ahead. Well, what transpired was in 1975. Uh, and the Ford administration, the United States, thanks to Henry Kissinger, promised the government of Israel that the United States would never talk on any level to the PLO unless it did X, Y, and Z. And in 1979, Andrew Young was not only the ambas- our ambassador to the UN, but he, in the summer. July of 79, also occupied the seat of president of the U.N. Security Council, which is a rotating position. So he was president of the Security Council. And the Kuwaitis were going to present a motion to have the U.N. support the establishment of a Palestinian state. The Carter administration didn't want this to happen. They asked Young to exert every effort to make sure this never got placed before the UN and to do that Young sent out his feelers the Kuwaitis and other Arabs said okay we'll shelve this idea but you have to get the PLO's permission to do it and so Young decided secretly to meet with the PLO's representative to the UN a man named Zahdi Labib Tarazi secretly meet him prearranged thing they met at a party and um Terzi agreed to this. The Kuwaitis pulled the resolution, and Young thought he had served American diplomatic interests. But it was apparently Israeli intelligence that found out about the meeting. It was leaked. Young was asked about it publicly. The State Department was asked. He kind of brushed it off, and then apparent, and then a huge brouhaha emerged, and Carter uh, fired him uh, about. Uh, the second or third day after this thing went public. And that was that, set off a whole firestorm, which, um, ironically, 39 years later, we see a similar kind of brouhaha going on over the recent firing by CNN of the Temple University scholar Mark Lamont Hill, who also made some comments that were understood as as crossing a red line of being not only anti-Israel, but anti-Semitic. And uh, he, too, is quickly sacked from him, not from his teaching position, but his, his paid position as a commentator on CNN. So echoes of the same kind of thing, high-profile black people speaking in ways that are understood to be uh, somehow associated with Palestinians, the PLO, destruction of Israel, what have you, and very quickly being forced to resign so it's kind of ironic all these decades later we see echoes of of that whole issue the the andrew young affair
2: and then the other side of this chapter is bayard rustin who's sort of fighting trying to fight this last ditch sort of rear guard effort to to shore up public opinion for israel tell us a little bit about that
1: I think the way you characterize it is, is very good. <laughs> Rustin has been the source in recent years, the last five years, there's been a lot of interest in him. Books, a, a movie came out about him. He, is, he helped form the civil rights group CORE in 1942. He is the, the planner, the architect of the March on Washington in 1963 at which Martin Luther King Jr. spoke. He was a pacifist, labor activist, a socialist, civil rights worker. But starting in 1965, he made this shift, what he called from protest to politics, where Rustin said, you know, blacks have to follow up on the gains of the civil rights movement, which, starting with the Voting Act's right of 65, the traditional civil rights movement was really coming to an end. And he said, we need to follow up on this with robust economic growth and opportunities for blacks. We need to work to make that happen. And to make that happen, we've got to enter the mainstream politics. We can't just be protesting. And that meant working with the Democratic Party, although he was a socialist, working with the labor unions like the AFL-CIO, working with Jewish organizations. And as such, black power enraged Rustin when it broke out about a year later. He had no patience for black power. Activists saw it as really ruining the, the gains that have been made, alienating whites, and in particular, alienating Jewish supporters of black causes. Rustin deeply felt a kinship with Israel, with uh, the labor movement in Israel that had really given birth to the country. He had an ideological commitment to it, but he was also keenly anxious to show Jewish Americans in particular and others in the, you know, sort of the liberal labor uh, alignment around the unions and the Democratic Party, that not all blacks were on board with this black power anti-Israel stuff. So in 1970, right at a time when people were pressuring the Nixon administration to provide state-of-the-art phantom fighter jets to Israel, um, uh, Bayard Rustin, lo and behold, rounded up a group of eminent black figures in public life, and they all put their name to a big statement he put in the New York Times and in the Washington Post. Black Americans in support of Israel and this, that, and the other thing, and then at the very end, and oh, by the way, we support the call to send jet fighters to Israel. And this, the last part really infuriated not only black power activists who in general reacted very badly. They called him an Uncle Tom, on his knees begging, you know, the white man, Jewish white men in particular, to please support them. But uh, the idea of, of sending arms so that Israel could attack Palestinians as people of color angered them. And it also distanced him from many of his erstwhile pacifist supporters, who were aghast that Rustin, as a someone who had been a pacifist all his life, had been in jail in the Second World War for being a conscientious objector, was now publicly calling for the sale of arms to one side in the Arab-Israeli conflict. A few months later, in December of 1970, a group of black activists, including one of them who had toured Jordan and was mistaken for a uh, being a Black Panther, they got together and called themselves uh, uh, the Committee of Black Americans for Truth in the Middle East, and they published a big ad in the New York Times that was essentially ba- Rustin's ad in reverse. We support the Palestinians. We denounce Zionist Israel. And so there was a kind of battle of of the op-eds, or the battle of the uh, advertisements. But Rustin was not one to quit. Five years later, had another time of testy American Israeli relations, he formed a group, 1975, called Black Americans to Support Israel Committee, BASIC, B-A-S-I-C. Did the same thing, rounded up a group of eminent, uh, moderate blacks, civil rights leaders, musicians, uh, baseball players like Henry Aaron, and they, um, they uh, formed this group, they put an ad in the, in the big papers, and he tried to carry on beyond advertisements, but never got much traction. Um, You know, the world had really changed, black America had changed, but really to his dying day, Rustin remained, as some people in the black power movement called him, quote, Israel's man in Harlem. And he never, never gave up in that struggle, which even some of the internal records show that he himself was not convinced that, that even though many blacks were not outright supporting The Arab position, the fact that so many felt neutral about it, really bothered him uh, up until his death in 1987.
2: Rustin's a fascinating figure. Um, I mean, it's in the same period he also finds himself sort of cooperating with agents of the South African government in the United States. At of, the
1: same, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, he wrote a letter to um, an official in the American Jewish Committee in 1976, bemoaning the fact that Israel had welcomed the Prime Minister of South Africa during a state visit, and you know, why is why is Israel doing this? So, you know, I, I, on the one hand, he was either um, sort of. <laughs> Uh, proclaiming his innocence in that letter or his ignorance in that letter or it was shrewd politics, I don't know. But he, again, it, particularly with the South Africa issue and the, the proximity, the closeness of Israel and South Africa and they're cooperating in nuclear tests and, and uh, really bedeviled his efforts to explain to his fellow black Americans that, you know, Israel were the good guys over in the Middle East. Uh, and... Um, yeah, the South Africa issue really bedeviled him.
2: Then you end the book, before you end before you get to your epilogue, with the discussion of visits to Jordan and to Yasser Arafat. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes, I called it that title, Looking Over Jordan, which is taken from um, the famous black Negro spiritual swing low sweet chariot. In the wake of the Andrew Young affair, which really enraged In particular, mainstream civil rights organizations. I mean, black power was essentially a relic at that point, a bygone, uh, you know, a relic from a bygone era. And you had mainstream groups such as the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and its then leader, uh, Reverend Joseph Lowry. And uh, although in many ways they were rivals, you also had Reverend Jesse Jackson from the Operation Push movement, each publicly saying, Can you, can you hear me?
2: Yeah, I can hear you now. You, you did okay. cut out there
1: for a second. But. Yeah. Uh, you had both Joseph Lowry of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You had Jesse Jackson of Operation Push publicly announcing within weeks, in one instance within days, of Young's firing, of Andrew Young's firing, that they would pick up his mantle, that as black Americans, they blacks had something to say about peace in the Middle East, Uh, war in the Middle East, if America ever got involved, would involve a disproportionate number of blacks as soldiers, that they, as Christian ministers, had a mission of peace, and they were going to carry on the question of dialogue. They thought it was ridiculous that the U.S. government would not talk to the PLO, and they said, in service of Middle Eastern peace and bringing our ideas about peacemaking, we're going to travel to the Middle East, we're going to meet with Israelis and meet with, with Yasser Arafat, the head of the PLO, and they did. Uh, Lowry and the SCLC went to Lebanon. They did meet with Arafat. They presented ideas. They, They prompted him to issue a moratorium on PLO violence. They prompted him to accept Israel's right to exist. The Israeli government, under the prickly prime minister Menachem Begin, however, refused to meet them. And so they only ended up going to Lebanon. Jesse Jackson went a month later to the Middle East. He too met Atifat, but his visit encompassed neighboring Arab, ta- uh, Arab states as well. He, he he met with Syrian President Hafez al-Assad. He met with Jordanian officials. He met with the Egyptian President, Anwar Sadat. And um, again, both of them saying that, you know, we have a message of peace and reconciliation, and we're willing to meet both sides— In service of this mission, which is not only uh, good for America, it's good for the Middle East, it's good for black Americans, and again, it's a way of showing, and this is actually a very black power thing coming out here among mainstream black groups, that blacks have as much a right to speak to the great issues of the day as any other ethnic group in America. They said, you know, Greek-Americans talk about Cyprus and Greece and Turkey, and Jewish-Americans are free to talk about Israel, and Irish-Americans are always talking about Britain and Ireland. Uh, You know, blacks have a seat at the foreign policy table, too. We're not going to sit in the back of that bus anymore. We have a right to speak out. We have a right to talk to whom we want, and we're not going to be silenced by anybody. Again, they were—this whole—this series of trips to the Middle East came in the wake— of Andrew young being fired. So there was a real edge to those trips and, um, and it made for some, some fascinating research.
2: So you conclude by, by saying that this rep- really represented the normalization of African American interest in Palestine. Fast forward 39 years, which, I mean, we already have done to a certain extent with Mark Lamont Hill. Where do we see this today?
1: Well, I ended in in my in my epilogue by saying that um, quite recently in two thousand thirteen some uh, a black student from Stanford University went to the West Bank and saw the huge wall that uh, Israeli occupation forces have have built to surround the Palestinian communities of the West Bank and keep them away from Israelis, he saw painted on this wall a tribute to Trayvon Martin, the black youth who was killed uh, in Sanford, Florida. Uh, And then later, starting in 2014, the disturbances in Ferguson, Missouri. And black protesters there who were dealing with the police, dealing with police tear gas, started receiving tweets from West Bank Palestinians advising them on how to deal with the effects of tear gas and how, you know, you deal with security forces because they dealt with Israeli security forces every day. And it really represented this growing interconnectedness between Palestinian young peoples protesting against the Israeli occupation in the West Bank and black people, young blacks in the streets, whether it was Baltimore, Charlotte, North Carolina, Ferguson, New Jersey, who were dealing with with security forces and in each case the protesters felt in palestinian territory and here in the united states that it wasn't just a question of protesters it was a question of of ethnic identity of us as blacks and that's the whole reason we're being shot uh it's us as palestinians that's the whole reason we're being shot and one of those students um ended up co-writing what was called the the in 2015 the black solidarity statement in support of palestine or in solidarity with palestine and it was signed in 2015 by over 1100 black americans including prominent ones like cornel west and angela davis uh, signed by groups like the dream defenders uh, there were exchanges uh, between you know palestinian students coming to the us black activists even black gospel choirs going to the west bank and again, it was an example of this lingering identity. People of color here seeing a similar struggle of people of color over there. And in each case, the struggle for freedom all boils down to ethnic identity. And it's it also has appeared, by the way, as I mentioned in the epilogue, on the cultural level. Um, there have been not just political activists, but even for instance, um, rap musicians who have spoken of um, the Palestinians, um, Jasiri X, Boots Riley, um, Talib Kweli, uh, Mos Def, and others that have uh, seen themselves and the way they are uh, ethnically profiled as very similar to what Palestinians have experienced. So this idea of Palestine as a brother-sister people or country of color something with which we as you know the african-american community um, i don't say we as an i myself personally but that the black community identifies with that is still very much alive 50 years after the events that i i wrote
2: about in my book and then i just wanted to conclude with one last question which is about your next work which you've alluded to a little bit but tell us a little bit about that
1: Yes, uh, my research, uh, you know, do it all at once kind of a philosophy, also was exploring how wider left-wing or left-leaning organizations and people were impacted and involved with the Arab-Israeli drama, uh, contrary, again, to kind of the great myth of the 60s that we get, which was that uh, movements for change, whether from um, African-Americans or white Americans, and movements for change were, you know, focused in kind of steely determination on ending the war in Vietnam and improving the situation of American blacks. And that was certainly true. But my research showed that within uh, the white left, as well as among African-Americans seeking change, that this question of how do we deal with Israel proved quite significant. And um, for example, that uh, groups, the Communist Party USA actually had this very deep kind of a civil war going on about how do we approach Israel and the question of who started the war in 67 and so forth. Uh, The Yippies uh, had strong pro-Palestinian feelings. The student group SDS, uh, its leadership did as well. And I chart other organizations beyond Uh, The new left and the old left, I talk about the peace movement and how paralyzed it seemed to be about how do we approach that war over there in the Middle East compared to the war in Vietnam. Even the women's movement, same thing. Um, And one of the reasons why was the disproportionately large number of Jewish activists within these various groups for whom the question of Israel was in many ways automatically tied up with complicated feelings of identity and background. And and so what I call Israel exceptionalism, uh, you know, denounce war, denounce imperialism, support liberation, here, 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 here. But when it comes to Israel, that question of Israel, do we include Israel as one more pro-American ally occupying foreign peoples, or do we make an exception for Israel because, well, you know, they're the good guys, um, really ripped, in some ways ripped apart and contributed to the demise of the left um, because of this inability to come to some kind of unified position. So that's going to be the next book, and uh, it has been um, just last week accepted by the same publisher, Stanford University Press, so hopefully that'll be out in about 14 months.
2: Congratulations. I'll look forward to reading Volume 2 when it's out. Yes, it is a standalone book.
1: Uh, It tentatively will be called something like Palestine uh, and the 60s, the American left and Israel exceptionalism. Uh, But that could change. But it it is a standalone book, but it definitely is part of the same deep research project. And I'm um, very excited to have it coming out.
2: Fantastic. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure, Zevin. I'm glad things finally worked out here. Yeah, we went through it trying to get this interview up, so good to have that done. All right, great. Well, all the best to you. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.